The Drum Candy Podcast is brought to you by Drum Factory Direct. What's up, everybody? Welcome into episode four of season five of the Drum Candy Podcast. This is your host, Mike Dawson, coming to you from Drum Factor Direct in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Those of you in the U.S., I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving weekend. You had a chance to hang out with friends and family, eat some good food, maybe kick back, watch some sports, and not listen to podcasts. That's why we did not put an episode out last week. We figured most people would be traveling or just kind of like unplugging for the weekend. So we're back. Here's episode four, and uh, let's get to it. I don't have any real news to report at the moment. There's a bunch of things in the works, but I'll keep you updated on all of that. Um, do once again thank Simon Treasure for our theme music. But other than that, let's get to our main topic. All right, we're going to wrap up our conversation with the great Kenny Washington. If you remember last episode, uh, Thomas Flint was talking to Kenny about his early days working with Betty Carter and various other experiences, and we're going to just keep the conversation going. Some more great stories and experiences, some gear talk about sizzle cymbals and Wilcoxon. And as always, it's a great hang. So here's Thomas Went interviewing the great Kenny Washington. Uh, Bish, you know, I, I played with Bish. Uh, what, that's what we used to call him. We used to call him Bish or Bish Bash. I met him uh, when I played with Bill Hardman and Junior Cook. I met Bill Hardman. It used to be this place called Jazz Mania. It was like during, at the end of the loft scene. And it was like on 23rd Street. And this guy by the name of Mike Morgenstern, not Dan Morgenstern, Mike Morgenstern. He was a saxophone player. He owned this loft and he had this, you know, you would go up these stairs up, you know, to this loft and he would have these jam sessions. And so out of the blue, he just called me and he said, how would you, I says, I have a gig for you playing with it, you know, in a jam session. And see, so the money was really light. And so I wasn't really interested in doing it. But just as I was about to get off the phone, he said, but wait a minute, uh, uh, I'm going to have, I'm going to have uh, Joe Carroll. Um, who else did he say? Pepper Adams, Andy Bay, and Bill Hardman at this jam session. Mm. I said, uh, yeah. I can do and that I, gig. With the tight <laughs> bread, man, you know, maybe, you know, if those guys like me, I might be able to do some gigs with them. And that's exactly what happened. So Bill Hardman was at that gig. And so, you know, I remember Bill said, Hey man, I never seen you before. Are you from here? I said, yeah. He says, man, well, give me your number. Man, what are you doing next weekend? Nothing. <laughs> he said, well, man, I got a gig down at Barbara's. Uh, can you make it? I said, yeah. So he, you know, he told me how much he was going to get paid. He gave me the address. I get down there, and Walter Bishop was playing piano. Wow. And Junior Cook. Junior Cook was the tenor saxophonist. Chin Suzuki was playing bass. Wow. Man. And so then, so then same thing happened with Bish. He said, man, I've never seen you before, man. Where are you from? <laughs> I said, I'm from New York. Here. He says, 
Well, man, what are you doing next week? <laughs> I mean, nothing. Well, man, can you make some gigs with me? And I have a rehearsal because I want you to learn my music. I said, okay. That's how I started working with him. It was like a snowball at the top of the hill, man. So, so, so thinking about both of those guys as pianists, what what did you, if anything, did did you have to do differently as a drummer, or what 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 did you get from Walter Bishop that you didn't get from Walter Davis as far as being you know playing with them as a drummer? Well, I mean, um, they were both, of course, coming out of Bud Powell. Yeah. For me, in my opinion, at that at that point, for me, Walter Davis Jr. was a much stronger pianist mm. than Walter Bishop. Got you. And Bishop was, Walter Bishop was in the cycle of fourths and cycle of fifths, and he would play things like that. You know, um, you know, he was great too, man. Uh, he was great, great pianist and a very nice guy. You know, in my opinion, I felt that, you know, I, you know, I often wondered about him, you know, it just seemed like, his best piano playing was like in the fifth when he was with Charlie Parker. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, he was with Art Blakey's jazz messengers too. Few people know that. I, I had heard that, but I, yeah. Uh-huh. He recorded, he recorded with them too. Yeah. The original, uh, or it may not, not, it may, may not be the original version, uh, but uh, of, uh, of Horace Silver's tune, May Ray. Oh but, yeah. But, right. Yeah, on 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 the on the MRC record, right? The MRC record. That's Walter Bishop on yes, that record, man. I totally forgot. G. That's a great record. Yeah, Gigi Grice, Joe Gordon, Gordon. That's right. And Bish is on that record, man. That's Bish right. Played his backside off, man. I mean, if you listen to that tune, May Ray, he has the first solo. Yeah, man. He- he dotted out of that during that break. He sounded like a bat out of hell, man. You know, <laughs> but. But I don't know, man. I mean, it, it, it's hard to say what, you know, what actually happened. But, you know, he wasn't, by the time I got a chance to work with him, even though his music was interesting, it, I mean, it, it, he wasn't as strong a pianist as, 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 as Walter Davis. But I like working with both of them, man. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, I like both of them. Great. So let's 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 move on to someone else. Let's let's talk about your 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 tenure and the record. You made a couple with him, but let's talk about the first one with the great Milt Jackson. Could you talk a little bit about working with him and what you what you got from working with him? Because he was a very unique player. Man, uh, 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 Milt Jackson, you know. The two guys and they were both from Detroit that. Every time I work with them, you know, I felt as if I was just like setting up my drums and getting everything set up, put the cymbals and just turn around without playing a note and just have to pack them back up again. Mm. Time would go so short. I was having so much fun. And as they say, time flies when you're having fun. Those gigs, those gigs, man, that I made with him, it was just like this, you know, it was like five minutes, man. Mm. I said, what do you mean? Or, or even a set. You know, I was like, that's all? Damn. Mm. I couldn't wait to get on the bandstand the next set or the next night to play with him, man. Mm. Uh, 
he was a nice, he was a very nice guy, soulful man. I mean, just and 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 you know, it was I mean, he plays like he is. It's the truth, man. It was the truth. Every note he played was truth. Mm. You know, um, I tell you the thing about that was great about bags, of course, this is another man who just harmonically, melodically you know, was just on top of everything. But time, man, his time, the way he would play time, the way he would phrase. And like Thelonious Monk, because unfortunately I never worked with Monk, but Bags was the same. He would pick these tempos. They call it the in the crack tempos. So it might be, it's not here. Ding, 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 ding. It's not ding, 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 but just right in between those two tempos. And Monk would do the same thing. So when I first started working with him, there was this joint called uh, Fat Tuesdays. It was on the east side. And so first, this is the first week I worked with him. We're playing along, you know, Joint is packed, man. Can't get no more folks in this place. So we're playing along. So he plays his solo. And, you know, the thing about Bags, he would play at best, at very, very best four choruses. He felt that if you played more than four, three or four choruses, you're practicing. Mm. Now, of course, he could have played much more than that, but it was amazing. So anyway, he plays his three or four choruses. And see, so the pianist was playing. Johnny O'Neill was playing. Oh, wow. So now the place is packed. He comes he comes like right on the side of me and whispers in my ear. He, he says, yeah, man, you, you're pushing the tempo just a little bit, man. Pull it back a little bit. Just pull it back. So I pull the tempo back a little bit, he says. Just a, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. Is it? Yeah, yeah, man, that's it. Just, 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 just like that. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah, man. For me, wow, that was that that you know he gave me a lesson, man, that was worth a million dollars. Then I really started to understand what he was, you know, what he was, you know, what he was talking about. Mm. You know, I mean, that was just amazing, man. I mean, to play with him, to play with him and his stickings, man, you know, the way he would sometimes I would I would watch because you, I can use that as a drummer, the way he would phrase different things. Mm. Uh, uh, and I would watch the, the kinds of stickings that he would use. You know, um, I learned a lot about that. And the, the, those mallets, man, listen, those mallets he used, those mallets, you know, they used to play, man, things were so heavy. Man, you could break your arm with one of them things, man. You, wow. I mean, the, 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 I mean, that's one of, well, it was this touch also, but those, those, the, those mallets were very, very heavy, man. You know, wow. but the way he, he played with such ease with them. Yeah. Because after he got off the bandstand, you know, one time I just picked him up and said, man, it, Sound like it felt like he had some steel, some steel balls on the end of the thing, man. Wow, wow! But then he got that golden sound. And another thing, he, you know, he was a vocalist. You know, 
Absolutely. I have that record from Italy. That's a great record. Great record. He also played the guitar too. He played the guitar on a Ray Charles record. Yeah. But 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 when he played the vibraphone, he was thinking of the human voice. Mm. And so, you know, you know, they they have the, the vibrator thing. You know, there's this little thing that's in the vibe that, that that's part of the 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 mechanical or electronical uh part of the vibes and like there's this thing that turns around like if you see it's like in this each one of them is like in a cylinder yep you know and and this thing turns and see so it's a motor and so uh when when that little thing turns it uh i think uh the vibrato it's, right vibrato but it's the air and the air makes the you know makes for that sound of the vibrato see so now the vibraphonists like Red Norvo and you know Lionel Hampton and, and and folks like that, if you listen to them, the vibrato was very fast. It's like the human voice, you know, it's very fast. Milt was actually the first one to slow, slow, slow it down. Mm-hmm. So that thing with, with with Lionel Hampton and Red Norvo and those guys, you know, that thing would be turning around real fast. But Bags had a way of he would adjust, and there would be an adjustable thing as the motor, and it had a knob, and he would turn that thing so that it would go, you know, the thing would turn around and it would go so slow to the point where it would be at the part where it would stop. It was almost off, but it was almost on. Wow. And that thing would going around real slow and that's how he got that that's one of the one of the ways uh, one of the reasons why he got that sound like that man wow but but man he was he was man he was a great person to be around man, you talk about somebody that could hear wet paint drying man mm. this guy was one time i was playing sweet basils with him no it wasn't sweet basil i was playing uh blue note and so one thing about bags you had to have what he called a zizzle symbol. <laughs> in other words, you had to have the symbol with the symbol with rivets in it. Yeah. If you did not have a symbol with rivets in it, you were not going to play with him. <laughs> it's as simple as that. He had to have that. And, and, and like Dizzy Gillespie with the trash can symbol, with the Chinese symbol, yep. when you played with him, he wanted to hear that sound behind him, just like Dizzy wanted to hear that China, China symbol sound behind him. So you had to have a zizzle symbol or a rivet symbol. <laughs> so one night, man, see, so I usually play a rivet symbol with, with with two rivets. Tops three, man. You don't need any more than that, man. But I usually play with two. But the guys like Art Blakey that used it, used, you know, sure. he had all the rivets in the symbol, you know, but that's what he heard. That's his sound. Great sound for him. So I usually play with two rivets, but with bags, he wanted more, man. See, so I would put, I would, let's see, I would put five, I think. Wow. Four, four to five, four, four to five rivets in. See, so I had the rivets that you could, you know, take mm-hmm. apply as you pull them out, put them in, you know, put them in and take them out. So, okay, cool. We're working down at the Blue Note. So we're playing, so the drums, the drums are right behind him. He's in the front. 
So we're playing along. And then he says, he just turned around right in the middle of his soul. He looks at me, washboard. He's called me washboard. <laughs> washboard, you don't have enough zizzles in that symbol. And he just turned around and started playing again. <laughs> and so I'm saying, it's okay. That was the last tune of the set. He didn't say anything. So he goes upstairs. And I, do you know what? I happened to look at that symbol. And it just turns out one of the rivets had come out. It was in the symbol bag. See, so, okay, five rivets turns in, five rivets turns into four rivets. Now, see, what, what messed me up was, how was he able to tell, man? Now, see, that's, that to me was frightening, man. That, that, that is know. frightening. I mean, now, <laughs> all right, five to three, all right, yeah, you could tell. Two to three, you could tell. But it was just one less rivet. Man. I saw that rivet in the bag. I said, oh, man, you know, all right, Mr. Rivet. You know, because that can happen. The rivets can just come out, and the rivet was in it. Put the rivet back in, and I went upstairs. You know, he was in the dressing room. Yep. Hey, Bags, man, I I'm sorry, man. Um, one of the rivets came out. It fell out of the symbol. It's in my bag. But I put it back in. I'm sorry, man. You know. <laughs> but I said, but he said, oh, that's all right. Watch something. How the hell did you know the difference between four, four rivets and five rivets? Man. And he just looked at me. <laughs> oh, watch, boy. <laughs> he never did answer me. But he knew the difference, man. That wow. <laughs> I said, now that's a badass. <laughs> Yeah, he is, man, for real. So so yeah. let's 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 take just a couple minutes. I think the first record you made with him is that record called The Harem, right? Yeah. Right, could you right. could could you talk a little bit about about that record but also I'm curious as to since you're on so many records, you always get such a great recorded sound. Could you talk a little bit about recording in general and how you think about it, how you approach it? Is it different than playing a live gig talk about that for for a while if you if you could well from listening to all the master drummers the most important thing to me is the sound and and all i wanted to do was to get a sound a quality of sound like any one of those guys i don't care and they're all different but the quality is what got me, man. You know, whether it be Philly Joe, Jimmy Cobb, you know, A.T., Big Sid, you know, Chick Webb, they're all different, man. But the sound, the quality of sound. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that all those guys have in common is they have good snare drum technique. They worked at that. There's no doubt about it. Elvin Jones, too, quiet as it's kept. You know, but but then that sound. So when I get in a recording studio, um, every place is different that you play. The drums are going to sound different in every place. And see, so I'm always trying to get a sound that's in my head, which comes from those masters as much as possible. That's what I'm 
you know, that's what I'm trying to do. Now, what they do with that sound, the engineers, that is, that's something else again, man, because they can mess you up. There have been many records that I've been messed up with because nowadays I've never seen so many deaf engineers in my life. They just don't hear it, man. Well, it's because they don't understand the music. They're into pop music and they don't understand jazz. And not only that, they have too much equipment, man. They have, they have like, you know, at least 10 tracks that they're dealing with. And there's that every one of them has a different component of the drums. But then when they get down to the final mix, they got to work with all these things to get them to sound even. Back in the day, what it was, you know, they mixed three track, three track into two track, you know, so they had much less to work, work with. But those engineers back then had a better understanding of the music and how it's supposed to sound. So anyway, when I get into the studio, I'm just trying to get the best sound that I, you know, that I can. And hopefully, after all the years of Wilcoxon and everything, hopefully that has helped me to get a, a good sound on the instrument. See, so any studio I go into, you know, I'm trying to get a, you know, a sound like the sound I heard or the quality. Because I don't have a sound like any of those guys, man. I just, I'm not a genius like that. I don't have those kinds of chops. I wish I did, but you know, I have to work with what I with the little that I have. And so yeah. the thing is, but that but but you can still get the quality, you know, the quality of the sound. And that's one of the things that you know I try to do uh playing live or in the recording studio. So so being in the studio is in many ways for you just like playing a live gig where you're just going to adjust to whatever the room is and, and work with that. Is that is that am I hearing you yeah. correct? Yes. Yeah. You, you have to work with, with with the room and what's in the room, how it sounds. Mm-hmm. And, but recording, you know, recording is, you know, Ron Carter, man. You know, last time, every time I get around Ron Carter, we always talk about that. And he said this. I didn't say it. He says, he says, recording, recording is hard. That's what he said. And mm. I said, oh, so it's not just me. He said, <laughs> nah, man, recording is hard because you get into the studio with four walls and you're, you, you're expected to do the best you can when the light goes on. And so, and so it took, it took me a long time experience man that's what it is to get over that and for me you know for I me mean, because you always feel self-conscious by how you're playing something it's like hearing your voice on a, on tape you know and you try to you know but but for me um what help what helps me what has helped me all this time is getting to the recording studio early. If the date starts at noon, I want to get there by about 10, 15, 10.30. Get a sandwich or whatever it is, look at the paper. I get in there at 10, 10, 10, 15, set the drums up, take my time doing it, man. Hit the drums, you know, tune to make sure everything is cool. I'm looking around at the ceilings. What, what is this place like? How am I going to, you know, and then 
I can sit back. I go to the store and get a sandwich, sit back, relax, look at the paper, or do you know, or just just sit there by myself, man. And then everybody walks in. Everybody else starts to come in. By this time, I'm I, I'm already used to the studio. Mm-hmm. My brain is used to what's what's got you know what's going to happen. See, so by the time of the recording, by the time the engineer, I'm get a lot of times I get there before the engineer. Yeah. So he gets sounds on me. We're, I'm waiting for everybody else. I'm there. I'm cool. You know, I'm sitting up there, you know, sitting up in the waiting room or whatever, just sitting back, eating a sandwich. I'm cool. Then come time to date, boom, I, I'm relaxed. I feel a whole lot better. Rather than getting to the date, if the date starts at 12, getting there at 1130, man, I can't do that, man. I hear I you. Mean, I've done that, you know, and it seemed, you know, but the other thing is also about recording is this. And this is something that, you know, that Roy Eldridge told me a long time ago. He says, he says, either you have your day or you don't, man. (laughs) You know, either you have your day. Look, man, there's been days, there've been some recording sessions that I have, I woke up early had breakfast, you know, get to the date early, nothing. <laughs> At least as far as I'm concerned. And there's been other dates and I might, you know, traffic or something, I'd huff and puff and get the stuff out of the taxi, man, and you do that, all this kind of stuff. I'd get there, I'd get there on time, but I'm really not on time because I'm late. Even though I'm, I'm there like a half hour before the date, set up and everything, you know, I'm still huffing and puffing. I'm still a little bit nervous. And then, boom, good day. Yeah. Either, so Roy Eldridge, I understand. Either you have your day or you don't. It's just, it, it is what it is, man. Yeah, yeah. But you try to do the best, but you try to do the best that you can. But still and all, man, I mean, I always try to get to the date at least an hour, hour and a half. Before before anything goes down. Yeah, that's good advice, man. That's good yeah, advice. It works for me, man. I mean, you know. Yeah, no, that's all. That's all good, man. That's that's what we're here to do is to get your take. Forks Drum Closet, Nashville's full line drum store, celebrating its 40th year in business. Forks is independently owned and operated in the heart of Music City. Specializing in drums and percussion, Forks offers great discounts on all major brands and will beat any retailer's advertised price. From new and used equipment, vintage drums, and marching and orchestral instruments, Forks has something for every drummer. They also offer professional rental, repair, and restoration services, as well as drum lessons. Stop by their storefront at 308 Chestnut Street in Nashville, Tennessee, or call 615-383-8343, or go online at ForksDrumCloset.com. So let's uh, let's 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 move on and talk about uh, another one of the masters that you've worked with. And that's the great uh, Benny Carter, the king. Oh, man, the king, man. Because you 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 played and and recorded with him in both a small group and a big band setting. Could you talk a little bit about working with him and what did you learn from working with him? Well, he's, of course, a gentleman. A really, you know, if I could be half. If I could be half, man, the man that he was, I'd be doing all right, man, <laughs> really. Um, to watch him, man, one time I was 
I wasn't. What was it? Was it this? Was I at? I must have just been there at a recording session because I mean I love this man. You know, I mean, I looked up to him, and well, and that's why they called him the King. Everybody looked up to the King. Mm-hmm. When I made that record with Phil, you know, Phil Woods and and, and Benny, what was interesting is that Phil got there first, mm-hmm. and you know, Phil Phil Woods, great alto saxophone player, you know. He he was he could sort of kind of be like um he was like he could sometimes be like a like a a sailor, <laughs> you know, some yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, he could be kind of gruff. That's the uh, word I'm looking oh, for. Oh yeah. Gruff. But a beautiful cat though. You know, and he might he might, you know, now, now Benny Carter was this, so he's talking trash, you know, he's cursing and everything. La, 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 la. Benny Carter walked in, man, and I could see a halo <laughs> on Phil's head. <laughs> and everything was, and, and for real deal, everything was, the respect was incredible. Mm. There was no more cursing. It was none of that. Which part would you like for me to play, Mr. Carter? <laughs> everything was, yes, Mr. Carter, no, Mr. Carter. That's the mm. kind of respect, man. I mean, you know, when Phil Woods does that, you know, but I, I felt the same way about him. And he, um, I remember one time, it was, it must have been, it must have been one of those record dates or something. I'll never forget this, man. I'm sitting up there talking to him, right? But he's writing some music. Well, maybe I was just in the studio. I can't, but anyway, I saw him do this. So then he's, we were talking about Dizzy Gillespie. So then he says, so now I'm standing there next to him and he's writing. So now I'm trying not to, you know, uh, interrupt him from what he's doing because he's writing music out. Mm. <laughs> you know, so then he says, well, how's Dizzy? Oh, he's asking me some, he's asked me some questions. So he says, well, and I said, I was answering him real short. Yes, no, you know. So then he turns around, he looks up to me, he looks over his glasses, he says, man, what's wrong, man? You don't want to talk to me? I said, well, Mr. Carter, I see you writing music. I'm just trying not to, I'm trying not to interrupt you, man. He's, and he says, oh, nonsense. So then how is Dizzy, how is Dizzy doing? Have you seen him? I said, oh, yeah, well, I saw him, you know, I saw him a couple of weeks ago. He was in New York City. Oh, yeah? Yeah, well, you know, he was out in Cal, and he's writing, he's writing while he's talking. Wow. You know, man, he put that music on the stand for the guys to play. You know, that stuff was perfect, man. Man. Wow. Unbelievable. And that's real bad, dude. Um, but he, but, but, but he's, I'll tell the story because I've told this before, man. I mean, but he, he was a lifesaver for me, man, because this was a real, He's, this is a real, what I would call, well, actually what Ron Carter would call, he was a real man. Mm. He said that, Ron Carter said that about Coleman Hawkins. Wow. But, he, you know, Coleman Hawkins and Benny Carter, they're cut from the same cloth. You know, I mean, those those two, you know. But anyway, those are real men. Um, I'll tell the story. I've, I've told it before, man. But, but to show you how he was, how smart this cat was, I came to a recording session that he was doing with um, 
with this big band. And Mel Lewis was the drummer. Was that the Central City Sketches record? Central City Sketches, that recording session. It That's was a Clinton. great record, man. Yeah, yeah. That was at Clinton Sound Studios. So I was going through a nasty divorce, man. I mean, it was nasty. You take off the Y, you put three E's on the end. Nasty, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Woo! And so anyway, this was, that record date was like on a, either a Saturday or a Sunday. So I came up there to see both Mel and, and, and Ron was on that date too. That's right. And, 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 and Benny Carter. So I came up there. And so, you know, man, I mean, I was having some rough times, man. So I walk into the studio and there was during, the, it was during a break. So there's Benny. He's talking to some people. So he looks around and he sees me. And he's talking to these people. And like all of a sudden he says, excuse me. I, can, I didn't hear him, but he was like saying, excuse me. He walks over to me and he gives me a big hug. And he looks me dead in the eye and he says, young man, I heard all that's happened to you. I heard all about it. So I don't know if it was Mel that told him about it or who it was. Maybe they were talking and Benny asked how I was doing it. And probably Mel said, well, man, you know, he's going through some changes, man, you know. So Benny says, man, I heard all you've been going through. He said, man, don't let it bother you. He said, give her what she wants. It ain't nothing but cheap dollars. That's exactly what he said. Wow. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time. He said, it ain't nothing but cheap dollars, man. Let it happen. And then so then and so then we went on talking. He says, Well, he said, Well, man, I asked him, he said, Well, man, what's your secret, man? I said, I think at that time he was like in his 80s, but he looked like he was like <laughs> in his 50s. I said, Well, I said, Mr. Carter, what is your secret? He said, listen, watch, I'm telling you, I, I told you, I'm going to tell you again. I don't let anything bother me, man. Mm. I said, I don't let anything bother me. And see, so he had the same thing happen to him years before. He said, man, he said, he, he, he said, I don't, don't let, I don't let any of that kind of stuff bother me, man. Mm. He says, and remember one thing. He says, remember one thing. He, he says, don't keep no hate in your heart. It will kill you quick from cancer. That that was really something for him to tell me that, you know. Hey, man, could you say that one more time? The, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the internet was slowing down. Could you say that one more time, what he said to you? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, you know, he said, he said, man, I don't let anything bother me, man. He says, and remember one thing. Don't keep no hate in your heart. It will kill you quicker than cancer. Mm. Man, I mean, that was really deep, man. That was that's... really deep because that's exactly how I felt, boy. I mm. mean, you know, and and so, so we talked for a little while longer. So months later, I get a call to work with him at, uh, uh, man, what was it? There was a joint that was on 6th Avenue, 6th Avenue and eight, um Carlos one, Carlos one. Oh. It was a club called Carlos. I got a call to work with him, but I, it was a conflict. I was working up the street with Tommy Flanagan at the Vanguard. So I couldn't make the gig. 
But anyway, I showed up early, you know, to see Benny, you know, just to see him, to say hi. So there he is upstairs in the dressing room. And see, so by this time, you know, I mean, yeah, I had to go through court and everything, but everything turned out all right, you know, I guess. Well, as well as could be expected. <laughs> so he see me, my reflection in the mirror coming into the dressing room. And he sees me and he says, yeah, see, didn't I tell you, you all right now, huh? You all right? Are you okay? I said, yeah. See, what did I, what did I tell you, man? Wash, what did I tell you? See, didn't I tell you? Said, yeah, Mr. Carter, you were right, you know. <laughs> yeah, man, he, he, you know, man, I mean, he was, you know, he was, you know, he was beautiful, man. Just, yeah. You know, as 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 a drummer playing with him, was was there anything you had to do differently behind him, or or was there anything that he asked for, you know, from you? No, no, no. He, you know, I mean, no, he never he never asked for anything like that. Um, you know, he wanted you to play. He he basically wanted you to play your way. But you know, for, for me, man, I was always mindful of those guys. See, you know. Yeah. I listened to them so much that I knew what was expected of me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, okay. You don't play for Benny Carter the same way you would play for Charles McPherson. Right. It's apples. And I mean, they're both very good, but both very different styles. And so with all those guys, I, I came in there knowing, knowing what I had to do. I knew what the style was going to be. Benny was very open to a lot of different things, but I mean, you know, you're not going to come in there bashing and crashing. You're going to come in there, you know, tipping like, you know, the guys that had played with him, you know, in the past, you know, it, you it, know. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, man. I think, I think a lot, especially a lot of younger drummers, I think a lot of, a lot of them feel like when they're playing with someone that they, you know, to, to, to do a good job, especially, you know, we're talking about jazz I think a lot of them feel like they have to they have to really sort of push everybody that they're playing, you know, push and push and push. And with with some artists, that's true. Some some artists want to feel that. But a lot of artists, it's not about that. And with guys like Milt Jackson or Benny Carter or Tommy Flanagan, I don't think those guys were looking for that. Right. No, they weren't looking for that. But you see, that's the sad part about it, because there's not many of those guys around. Right, right. So there's not many of those guys around anymore. I mean, so I mean, I mean, so so these guys are they're one trick ponies, man. In my opinion, yeah. they're playing one way, and they don't know any of the other styles. But see, you know, I caught the tail end, man. I was very, very lucky. Yeah, I caught the tail end of being able to play with Johnny Griffin and Eddie Lockjaw Davis. Those guys want you to hit it, man. Sure. You know, it's moody. But then you have somebody like you have somebody like like, um, you know, like Benny Carter. Where where, you know, you just have to they want you to swing and have a good time. Nice sound, you know, and, and, and a company play play for them. You yeah. got Promise you have to play for each person that you come in contact with. It is not your show. Yeah. You know, you are the side man. And the most important thing is for you to think about how to best make the leaders 
of these bands sound? Or how, or better still, how can you make the band sound the best that it could sound? It's not about you, it is about the music. Yeah. It's the same playing these different rooms, man, you know. Everybody yeah. is to out, everybody's out to try to impress, man. I mean, but you know, you got to play the situation. See, so for all those guys, you know, I would man, for me, y- you know, I wanted to be like a Grady Tate or OC Johnson. To come in and play in any situation, play behind a singer, play behind a trio, play, you know, play some play swing, you know, and next thing you know, I'm playing, you know, playing playing bebop. I never forget, man, one time of playing with uh, I was playing with Hank Jones at the uh the uh Museum of Modern Art. And then from there. I took my drums and went right down to the Vanguard to play with Tommy Flanagan. Mm. Two different ways of playing. One doesn't work for the other. Mm-hmm. You have to play a different style with Hank than you did with Tommy. Both of them are great. It's apples and oranges. They both taste good. Mm-hmm. You have to figure out what works for one that won't that won't work for the other. Yeah. And I never forget coming down coming down Seventh Avenue in the taxi saying. Man, pinch me, man. I had to play with two of the greatest pianists of all time, man. Back to back, man, going mm. to work and getting paid for it too, man. I mean, mm-hmm. but, but but you you know, it's 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 always important to know, you know, to know the different styles of of who you're playing with, man, you know. Yeah. And it's 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 important. Music has changed quite a bit. But hey, listen, you know these styles come back to kick you in the butt, man. You see, so you have to know them. I mean, y- yep. you know, you might think that you know, and you don't know what, what you're going to be doing. See, that's the other thing. Yeah, you, you know, everybody, all these, you know, I see in school all the time. These guys have grand illusions inside out. Uh uh-uh. uh. You, to keep the lights on and keep your stomach from grumbling, you might have to play with a piano trio. <laughs> you might have to play with a pianist that's playing in the style of Earl Hines, maybe. It's not Herbie Hancock, it's Earl Hines. Both of the styles are just as great as the other, man. I mean, that's right. But you got to play with them. And the more people that you learn how to play with, the better off you're going to be. And that's something that Mel Lewis taught, taught me a long time ago, man. Yeah. No, that's. I think that's the ultimate advice, man, is, 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 is listen and learn as, as Philly Joe said to you. <laughs> listen, watch and learn. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. And, uh, uh, drummers do, do the homework, man. Do, do the homework, please. I beg you. <laughs> I beg, I beg of each and every one. Do the homework and learn the snare drum. Learn go, the bass. Man, I beg you to learn the basics. Learn who Kenny Clark is. Learn who Big Sid Catlett is. I mean, really, know their records. Be able to tell who each one of these people are. I beg you, man, because that's going to help you out. You might not think so now, but that's going to help you out immensely. All right, now let's get to a little lesson.
This week I'm going to show you a few ways that you can utilize two of the more popular flam rudiments, the flam tap and the flammed mill, to play syncopated melodic ideas between the hands. Before we do that, we have to review what these two rudiments are. A flam tap is a grace note, which is a low note with one hand, followed by a primary note with the other hand. That's the flam. And then you play a tap with the same hand that played the primary note. So if it's a right flam, then you play a right tap, and then you reverse it. Left flam, left tap. So that's the flam tap in its purest form. And the flammed mill starts like a flam tap. So you do a flam with one hand followed by a tap and then you do two alternating singles to fill out four sixteenths. So flam, tap, alternating, alternating. So those are the flam tap and the flammed mill in their pure form, and now we're going to apply them in a musical situation that involves an accent pattern of eighth notes and quarter notes. A good source for material for this would be Ted Reed's Syncopation, if you get to the section on page 31, 33, somewhere there, where he starts having these syncopated phrases, they're combinations of just eighth notes and quarter notes. The first one is an eighth note followed by a quarter note, and then an eighth note followed by two quarter notes. Alright, so now we're going to play that same phrase accented within flam taps and flammed mills. To do that, anytime there's an eighth note, play a flam tap. Anytime there's a quarter note, play a flammed mill. That's the basic interpretation. Make sure your accents are clean within your flam taps and flammed mills so you can really hear that melody. Now let's just add some time. We're gonna just put quarter notes with the left foot and quarter notes with the right foot. So both feet are gonna be playing quarter notes just to give us some pulse to this phrase. This time I'm going to reinforce the accents with the bass drum. So now the bass drum is doubling the accents and the left foot is still playing quarter notes. This time I'm going to play eighth notes with the left foot while still doubling the accents with the bass drum and using the flam taps and flam mills.
now if you're at your kit, you can just start splitting the right hand and left hand and get these interesting back and forth conversation between the hands, doing you know quarter notes or eighth notes with the left foot, maybe sometimes doubling with the bass drum, sometimes just playing quarter notes. This is where you just start to explore, um, mainly with orchestration. So let's mess around with some toms. There's also some cool sounds when you put the right hand on cymbal or either hand on cymbals, ride cymbal or hi-hat. One other idea is you can play a samba feel with the feet, boom, and then mess around with the sticking, moving it around. This is something I picked up from the great, late great Dom Famularo. So obviously that's just a few ways to mess around with syncopated phrases using flam taps and flammed mills. You can do any of the exercises from those few pages in syncopation. Ultimately, you just want to improvise your own ideas and we'll see you next time. Now let's get to a couple of your listener questions. All right, this first question comes in from Matthew. If you were to start recording drums for others, what would be the first five snare drums you would pick to cover the biggest variety of music you may see? I knew right away what my five would be. I know what four of them would be. The fifth one is kind of the wild card. Lately, I've been using a 5x14 brass on almost every session, so that would be guaranteed um, first choice. Um, Black Beauty or any of any kind of like good quality brass drum, 5x14 will cover a lot of ground for you. And then a deeper metal drum, 6 and 14 aluminum. My case, like a superphonic, gives me the, you know, obviously gives me the John Bonham sound, but you can do a lot more with that drum as well. So those are my two metal drum choices, 5x14 brass, 6 and 5x14 aluminum, preferably seamless, but there's some really good quality rolled shells out there as well. Now for wood drums, 5.5x14 maple, that will cover your all-purpose, general, great sounding wood snare drum. And then for a deeper option, I've been getting a lot of use out of a 6 and a half by 14 birch. Just a little bit punchier, a little bit more contained, super versatile. So those are my two wood drums that I would make sure I have at the ready. 5 and a half by 14 maple, 6 and a half by 14 birch. Now, the fifth drum 
would be just something that I would have to scope out what the session is. If, if it might be an old marching drum for like a really dark kind of deep sound, like a 15-inch marching drum. Um, or it might be like a 12-inch drum if, if it's going to be more of a contemporary type of session. So that would be just something, or it might go with like an old three-ply that just sounds really wild and crazy. So that fifth drum is kind of the the wild card depending on what the session I know it's going to be, what style of music. So 5x14 brass, 6.5x14 aluminum, 5.5x14 maple, 6.5x14 birch, and then some sort of weird fifth drum to give me just something crazy if I need it. All right, here's one more question. This one's from Dustin. I've been looking for an opportunity to work in sales or marketing for a drum-related company. Do you have any suggestions or advice for how to break in and find opportunities in this fairly small, seemingly an insular world? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question, and there really is no clear path. The drum industry is very small and just very strange. My experience, it was just getting to know someone that worked at Modern Drummer, and I was, his, I was assigned to be his graduate assistant. It just worked out, and then I got into that. I started writing for him, and I got into the world that way. Um, you can't really plan for that, other than you just have to seek out the people that you want to work with or that have the jobs that you're interested in. Um, I would say maybe try to get a job at a local drum shop or instrument manufacturer just at the ground level, just to get your way in, just to meet people. Um, and then in my experience, the cream always rises to the top. So if you're really good and you're good to work with and you get your job done and you're dependable and you're creative um, and you have energy for this crazy <laughs> industry that we work in, you're going you're gonna to find other opportunities. So that's the best advice I can give is to just seek out those who might be able to help you you know, with a mentorship or an assistantship or an internship or, you know, again, just work at a drum shop and just help them build their marketing. And then you never know because you're going to meet dealers, you're going to meet distributors, you're going to meet all kinds of people once you get in the foot in the door. So just look for some kind of entry-level job. And if you're good, you'll stand out. All right. Once again, if you have any questions you'd like me to answer on the show or send out to someone else to answer, shoot them over to drumcandypodcast at gmail.com. All right, it's time to wrap up the episode with our warehouse pick of the week. We still have two of the Bucks County Prime Series snares available, which I find it hard to believe that they haven't sold yet. Um, we have a birch one and we have an ash one, so I'm going to feature the 5.5x14A ply ash right now because it's a very special drum, and I think it's maybe most, most people haven't had a chance to really mess around with ash snare drums before. So let's dig in a little bit to the Prime Series 5.5x14A ply ash snare. This is a 5.5x14 8-ply ash Bucks County Prime Series snare drum. It has eight single-point lugs, it has 2.3mm steel hoops, it has a double 45-degree barren edge with a rounded back cut, which gives you a really crisp, clean attack, but also nice, full, woody sound. It comes with Evans G1 coated on top, 300 series on the bottom, and some German-style 20-strand wires, a nice premium throw-off. It's an amazing drum. Let's talk a little bit about what ash sounds like. So ash is a, a moderately hard species. It sits around 1320 on the Janka scale of hardness, which puts it right around where oak is. And if you think, if you ever played oak drums, ash is pretty similar to that. Being that it's a relatively harder wood, it's going to have a naturally higher pitch, but it also has a quite open grain structure, which looks amazing, but also translates into a shorter decay. So this drum is great for situations when you want a clean, crisp, snappy, 
somewhat bright but nice and dense sound, but you want it to die out quickly. I use this drum often on gigs where I want the drum to hit and quits, especially if you're miking it up. There's not going to be a lot of sympathetic sound, a lot of excessive ringing for you to deal with with gates and EQ and all of that. All right, so let's check it out. I have it tuned currently at what I think is like a medium high, which is C sharp on top, F sharp on bottom. Snare tension is medium, so let's give it a listen. Nice, big, open sound. Not super dry to feel like it's not giving me enough, but you know, you can hear that that decay is pretty quick, nice and smooth. So that is my all-purpose tuning. That'll work on pretty much any gig. It's my starting point for sessions, but let's try cranking it up a half step. And I took it up to a half step, which is a fundamental note around a G. The starting point was like a fundamental F sharp, slightly sharp F sharp. Now we're at a slightly sharp G. Um, you'll hear it's a much drier sound now. It's a little bit more contained. This would be good for probably more low volume playing or really kind of crisp, snappy sounds. I also love that tuning. That might be more my gigging tuning for gigs where I have to play a lot of like wide variety of styles from Motown and jazz and big band and funk and all that kind of stuff. It just, just that extra half step just brought in the, the overtones even a little bit more. Um, no muffling you can hear. So nice, nice sound. Let's go one more half step and see what happens. All right, now we're up to a G sharp fundamental, which is usually as high as I tune a snare drum for any situation. This is really good for straight ahead jazz and funk, so let's give it a listen.
So that high tuning is starting to give me some of that like bite that I like out of a metal drum. So it's a good kind of in between between a kind of classic wood sound and the more kind of brighter sound of a metal drum without going all the way to brass or steel or aluminum. So that's tuned high. Let's take it down back down to like an F, so a half step below where we started. All right, now it's at F and it's really kind of opened up and sounding big and full, again, with just enough control so I don't feel like I have to dampen it. Let's take it down one more half step just to see what happens. So we're gonna take it down to an E. All right, I've got it tuned down to an E. I should say all these adjustments were like eighth of a turn, quarter of a turn at the most to go from one half step to the next. So you're really hearing the fullness of the shell now, a little bit of maybe some like pitch dip from the head being looser. It's probably about as low as I would take this particular drum. You could obviously force it to go lower and dampen it up and get that real kind of sampley sounding. But this is kind of as low as I would take this drum still maintain some character. So here's fundamental E, wide open. And there you have it, the Bucks County 5.5x14 Prime Series 8-ply ash snare drum. This is a great one to add to your arsenal, so go pick it up today.
All right, if you want to buy that drum before it's gone, head over to Drum Factory Direct. It'll be under the, there's a button at the top, Prime Series Snares, or you can find it under the snare drum menu. Um, we only have the two left, so when they're gone, they're gone, so go check it out. And that is it for this week's episode. Again, thank you for listening. Make sure you like, share, subscribe. Hit us with a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever. Um, give us a share on Facebook. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel. All the usual bits. If you need to reach me, drumcandypodcast.gmail.com, or you can hit me up, Mike Dawson Drums, on Instagram. Um, yeah, so that's it. Have a good week, and we'll see you next time.